Hello and welcome to Tell Me About Your D&D Character, a podcast where people get a chance to talk about their characters from different role-playing games. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today I'm talking with Ben Byrne, who you might know from our other podcast of Dice and DMs, where he is the resident dungeon master. And you, you may also know him from Melbourne Dungeon Masters, the, uh, the business that we run where we provide game running services. Uh, for different people around Melbourne and around the country as well, since we're still in lockdown and the internet is a thing that we can provide these services online. Online, that's where I'm going with that one. It's a little bit Irish. It's a top of the morning. There you are. Online. That's offensive and I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. But Ben is also one of my very good friends. He is the dungeon master of our home game. And honestly, I've been playing in Ben's game for three years now and I'm astounded every single time um, he brings out a new character or a new idea or a new monster and really gets us invested in the storyline. It was really good talking with him about this and really going back into his world of Aurelia and finding out where some of the the ideas and the inspiration for it came from, and really he's delving into what he likes so much about Dungeons and Dragons. I suspect I'm going to have him on again because we only barely scratched the surface, but of course there is also the other podcast where we talk about this on a regular basis. So we, um, we talk about this stuff a lot and I'm sure we'll cover it another time, but rather than get into all of that, uh, let's just get onto the episode. Don't put that in the podcast. Too late, it's already recorded. It's going to be on there. Shit. Ben, you're well known for our other podcast of Dyson DMs. Um, please yep. subscribe and like. <laughs> but a lot of the time there, you talk about your homebrew world, uh, Aurelia. And I just thought maybe you'd like to tell us a little bit about that uh, on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I'm most often a dungeon master more so than a player. And so my player character, so to speak, that's most precious to me is that campaign setting. Um, And look, man, I I could literally speak for hours about Aurelia and the ins and outs of it. It is a very um, top down, I think is the term kind of designed campaign setting where it's kind of the dm has designed most things from the from the beginning and the players kind of have to find a place to to insert themselves yep. rather than the players kind of contributing to to the campaign setting yeah. from the bottom it's up. a setting that exists outside of what the player characters are planning these things will continue yes. on rather than inf- they get to build the world as well i mean forgotten realms is like that as well yeah, I think Forgotten Realms is a lot more open than Aurelia, though, because Aurelia, you know, in, in terms of trying to find a distinct voice for it and a reason why you would want to play in Aurelia rather than the Forgotten Realms, uh, and I, I'd be curious if other campaign settings kind of suffer from this a little bit as well, is that it feels like a lot of what isn't included in Aurelia rather than the Forgotten Realms feels a lot like, you know, we include everything, like you really can leave a mark on there because the Forgotten Realms kind of has everything and anything included, which to me makes it feel a little bit wishy-washy and a little bit flavorless and a little bit vanilla. Um, Whether as Aurelia, I'm really trying to find a distinct point of view and a distinct um, reason to play in that campaign setting uh, and reason to to dabble within that world and exist within that world uh, that separates it from other campaign settings. Well, that's, 
I think a lot of DMs find that when they're creating a world, they want to make theirs unique. They want to have a certain feel to it, that there's a, a theme that's running through that world more so than what's already out there. They want to make it a personal story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, much like, you know, players want their characters to feel, you know, unique and independent and something new, um, even though a lot of the time, and this is the same for Dungeon Masters and myself, you're really just doing, you know, riffs on what's come before, really. Well, you know, it's always- very difficult to come up. Yeah, yeah, more or less. It's very difficult to come up with something that's never been done before entirely. But know? the riffs make it unique. Riffs make it more of your own story. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the beauty of Dungeons & Dragons, right? Typically, you're playing it with a small group uh, that are your friends, and it's just alchemy. You you grab bits and pieces of what you really like. You might grab the the political intrigue from Game of Thrones, but you mix it with... Um, you know, the monster hunters from The Witcher, but you might put in a little bit of, uh, you know, wizard lore from uh, from Lord of the Rings where all the wizards are kind of like these this race rather than, a, you know, someone, someone can't become a wizard. You have to kind of be born into being a wizard, you know. So you can grab all those different things that you find interesting and put them together in a melting pot um, and, you know, flavour a, a, a world to, to your own taste and the taste of your players. Well, you can tell that we're... We just had lunch, so we're hungry. Talking cooking metaphors there. Is that what you did when you were creating Aurelia? Did you what did you draw on to build this this universe? Aurelia was something that I invented. I don't think it was called Aurelia back then, but it was something that I invented when I was a teenager. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of like you know Western middle class living teenage guys, uh, you know, and I'm sure many, many girls and, and uh, non-binary people as well, creating, um, you know, fantasy worlds um, and their version of Lord of the Rings or, you know, whatever fa- or whatever fantasy novel they were reading at the time, you know, like Aragon. Um, I think that Aragon and the, that book series is kind of like the, um, you know, example of someone who did that and was actually very successful doing that, you know, and if you read Aragon now, uh, it really does read like it was written by like a 16 year old or something like that. I'm not sure how old the author was when he wrote it. But anyway, the point being Aurelia evolved out of my own uh, kind of desire just to write and create as a teenager. You know, I've I've, I've acted, I've written, I've podcasted, I've hosted, I've, you know, done all sorts of creative uh, storytelling things in the past and so this was just one of the early ones and when I started running games of Dungeons and Dragons initially it was purely practical it was like I don't want to have to read all the Forgotten Realms lore or all the Eberron lore or all the um, Ravenloft lore you know so that I can answer questions that players might ask me I'll have my own setting so that if anybody asks me a question I can just give them an answer even if I'm making it up on the spot and that answer is correct Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, I remember I wrote this thing when I was a teenager. I'll just use that and adapt that into D and D and the setting had to change a lot to kind of work for D and D, but at the same time, it, it really solidified a lot of ideas. Um, and I think made it into a, a really rich world where, you know, what I was writing when I was a teenager was really focused on a handful, you know, it was almost a D and D party. It was a, a handful of characters really drilled down on where they were located. And now that I needed an entire world, uh, I just started with the map and I I knew roughly what the map looked like. But then as I started drawing it into more and more detail, I was like, well, this will be a desert and this will be a frozen place and this will be like jungles and this will be that, you know. 
And then you start to think about what cultures kind of exist there that the the party might uh, encounter as they adventure through the land. Um, and the rest of it kind of evolved out of out of that, really. What style do you think? What? How would you describe the the themes of the Aurelian campaigns, the adventures that you've run? Are they? They. I'm assuming that they would have a set theme, having played in a few of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, Aurelia, um, you know, the shorthand that I always use to describe it is that it's dark fantasy, uh, which is a shorthand that I learned from one of my kind of uh, inspirational touchstones, uh, which is The Witcher. But it, it basically means dark fantasy at its best is fantasy that is more grounded. Uh, it tackles themes that are more adult. Uh, than you might typically expect. But it also uh, doesn't necessarily deal with heroes and villains in the same way that like high fantasy or epic fantasy might do. You know, in Lord of the Rings, Sauron is the epitome of evil. He's basically the devil. And in many ways, Aragorn, while he is redeeming the race of men, is the epitome of goodness, you know. And so is uh, Gandalf, for example. Whether as dark fantasy kind of suggests like, well, no one, everybody's got problems. Everybody's got faults. Everybody's got flaws. The players don't typically play as these mighty avenging heroes that nothing can stop. They're not Conan the Barbarian or anything like that. They're just people in the village uh, that decide to act when the goblins attack, you know, and that's it. They're, they're just, they're remarkable by their, strength of will rather than the fact that they are remarkable because the gods deigned that they were remarkable, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it is dark fantasy and it, and therefore deals with a lot of themes that are not typical, I don't think, to most D&D games, at least not in a genuine way, um, which are themes like tragedy and sadness and grief um, and loss um, and, uh, you know, silliness and fun is definitely permitted. Like I think dark fantasy and I think Aurelia has a reputation of being this like no fun, <laughs> jokes aren't allowed, grim, dark, everyone is sad all the time kind of place. And that's not true. No, not everyone's downtrodden. There's humor even in the darker situations. And that's just being, that's a being alive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It just tries to treat the, the, the game and the world as if they are a real place. And so, you know, with my acting background, I'm often thinking, what is the the NPC actually experiencing here or what is actually going on here in this scene and then playing the truth of that out so that when the party come into a shop and they go like, we want cheaper prices, give it to us or we'll kill you or something, you know, or they try intimidating the shopkeeper in some cartoonish kind of way, I'm not playing that for laughs or I'm not playing that for you know, to make it easy for the party. I'm going to play that as real. Like you've just walked in and threatened somebody's livelihood. You're trying to take from them for cheaper than you, you know, should have rightfully been paying for them. Or, or maybe a more common example um, is like, just like the, the goblin being interrogated, you know, party members don't give a shit about goblins. They will do whatever they want to them. Goblins are almost like zombies, you know, or androids in terms of like a disposable, you can kill it when you don't have to feel bad about it kind of thing. And yet I, as the DM and as the performer who is performing the goblin, when you're torturing the goblin, I'm going to act out the goblin like panicking and, and mm -hmm. screaming. And, you know, I don't want you to feel good about torturing another living creature because I think in the reality of the situation, you 
you shouldn't necessarily. And it's not to say that I want to like put my morals onto the players per se. I just want the players to have to grapple with the reality of what their characters are doing. So if you think that you're justified in torturing the goblin, then go for it. You know, if the goblin, you know, killed 70 people, um, you know, by a goblin. Yeah, that is a very impressive goblin. No wonder they're. Have you seen the commoner stat blocks? <laughs> yeah. uh, they're they're pretty bad. Um, you know, then then that's fine. But just grappling with the reality of the situation rather than like you know making fart jokes or whatever to try lighten the mood constantly. Embrace the 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 themes that make us human, like you know sadness and loss and um, anger and revenge. You know, in a genuine way. Is there ways that you've changed Aurelia to make it more that way, or has it always sort of been that sort of world? It's always sort of been that world. Um, the mythology of Aurelia is based on the short stories that I was writing originally, and it was based on a, a vampire called Damien, who's very Dracula-esque in his original conception, and an angel uh, called Alessia, uh, who in my kind of writing of angels was this divine being that existed on the mortal realm. She didn't really know why she was there or how she came into existence. Maybe she'd lived a life before, but she couldn't remember. But during the day she would exist, uh, kind of like born of the sun's rays. And then at night she'd just fade from existence. She wouldn't be on the mortal realm anymore. Um, Kind of like going to sleep, you know, but just she's just physically not there. And so it was this dichotomy of during the nighttime, Damien wakes up. And he kind of comes out and rules the roost. And at nighttime, Alessia, uh, sorry, at daytime, Alessia comes out and rules the roost. And so there's this back and forth dichotomy, but the tragedy of it being uh, that they're actually kind of Romeo and Juliet lovers um, that can never physically exist within the same space. You know, Alessia's very existence harms Damien because he's harmed by the sun and she's an angel that's kind of born of sun rays. Um, and so that theme of tragedy uh, always existed there. And that's very, like, melodramatic, but I wrote it when I was a teenager, so give me a break. Um, yeah, so those themes of tragedy, you know, I've been interested in that my whole life. I was always Batman instead of Superman. I was always, you know, The Witcher instead of, I Lara don't know, Croft. Aragon. Yeah, Lara Croft, whatever, you know. Like, I'm always more, you know, for me, experiencing negative emotions in a safe environment such as playing a game. And this goes for reading books, playing video games, all that sort of stuff. It's more of a catharsis than trying to ignore the negative emotions. And I know that makes me, you know, not unique or not, you know, entirely different from other people, but it's why I try to engage with darker media, darker themed media than, you know, lighthearted comedic stuff more constantly because I feel like that's... um, I like to be put in shitty situations but be given the tools to overcome them through determination um, rather than just be put in a situation where I can easily overcome it because, you know, I'm just the best because I am, you know, which is how I think a lot of D&D parties tend to play. Have you found that you've run Aurelia for a number of different groups um, and I would assume that it's a living world. It does change as the characters interact with it. Has there been a time when what you've seen for the world has shifted dramatically because of what the a party has done. I'm thinking, not thinking so much themes in this regard. I'm thinking more that there are characters and NPCs that you would have created for this world and a party has just blown that idea out of the water or just gone complete left, left turn when you're expecting a right turn. Yeah, not really, to be honest. Like not, not in any like massive significant way has a party like changed the setting. 
um, parties definitely like, you know, players get to contribute and get to come up with ideas and get to, you know, uh, uh, yeah, contribute in a way like, for example, if your character was a monk and they studied at a monastery, we'll find a place to put that monastery for you. Or we had a character once who grew up as an urchin on the street and uh, during a, a terse encounter with the town guards, she just said to one of the town guards, like, Bruce, you know me, like, you know, we're best friends. I grew up on these streets. And so I had to invent Bruce Water, the town guardsman. Um, he might have even been first name Bruce, surname Bruce Water. So he was Bruce, Bruce Water. Yeah. Um and he ended up becoming like a, a really significant character. It was the same actually with um, that that same player character. She was an orphan. She was raised by, uh, you know, like a, a guy who kind of ran an orphanage for for street rats. Uh, I'm trying to think of like another fictional example of this sort of Fagan. character, but I can't off the top of my head. Sure, yeah, he was kind of like a Fagin-like character. Perfect. Um, and he also, and Bruce Water, not so much, but, but this guy whose name was Haral, um, he ended up, he has survived into other campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, so has Pip the fairy dragon, who was like a, a, um, you know, uh, he was like a small familiar for a larger dragon and one of our party members wanted a familiar. So I was like, oh, maybe you get this like fairy dragon and you get gifted him, um, by the bigger dragon and, uh, the player named Pip Pip and Pip has survived into other campaigns. So I suppose there are times when that will happen, but generally with low, like not with like massive villains or world changing events, generally just with smaller NPCs. There are other examples where, for example, um, one of our players had a ex-husband who had become a paladin because she was a warlock. And uh, he was an antagonist in the campaign that I ran for you guys, a very short-lived antagonist, mind you, but nonetheless, he was there. I tried to carry him over into other campaigns and found that he just didn't fit because there wasn't that dichotomy between him and the party yeah. um, because there was no personal relationship. So for sure, they can add you know, strings to the bow. Um, improvisations that I make in a session uh, will survive. In, you know, I'm like, all right, next time I run this, campaign i'm going to add that person in there um for the next time that i run it um you know haral being the example um, but also you know shopkeepers that i make up a shopkeeper for this village and then the next time that village is visited in a separate campaign i know that shopkeeper is kind of there yeah you've got a draw to go to to pull out these characters when necessary rather than having to create them on the fly every time yeah exactly you kind of iterate each time you run the same area um, even between different campaigns, sometimes this like results in complete revisions. Like a party might go on a quest that's given by a different quest giver between campaigns. It's the same. It's the same quest, but just for whatever reason, it's made more sense to me that the quest giver has changed. Um, so different parties interacting with the world will absolutely change the world in those kind of. Um, you know, narrative ways of, of different characters or locations kind of showing up at different points in time. But in terms of like thematics, you know, Aurelia is really a campaign setting where the thematics are meant to affect the players, not the players affect the thematics, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the players are meant to grapple with the reality of what's happening in the world rather than forcing the world to bend to the player's will. Yeah. Because in real life, our, you know, we can do the best that we can to try and make the best out of our situation and try to make the world work for us, but we can't bend it to our will in the way that I think a lot of D and D games are run. Mm. 
Um, and so I try to, you know, capture that same vibe in Aurelia. You need to make the best of your given circumstances rather than just try and change everything. Yeah, it's to make the best of the the given circumstances and you might be successful in that and you may end up achieving all your goals, but you're not going to bestride the world as a colossus. You're not going to be stomping around talking with gods on the weekend like some D&D groups may end up doing. Yeah, for sure. And, and in fact, like completing every one of your goals may be difficult because sometimes your goals may be antithetical to each other. I quite frequently have, you know, antagonists that if you were to put them on the alignment chart would be good, you know, lawful good or, or you know, neutral good or even chaotic good. Let's talk about one of those. What's one of your favorite antagonists that you've thrown at a party? Oh, man, my favorite antagonists. Well, to give an example of what I'm actually talking about, there was a woman who was called uh, Angela or Angela. Uh, I can't think of her surname, but she was a paladin. She had a squire who I gave a bard stat block to, whose name was uh, Cassandra. Um, and she was, this was just after Xanathar's Guide to Everything had come out. So I had read The Redemption Paladin, which I love the idea of The Redemption Paladin. I think mechanically it doesn't really work that well because to use the rules of the Paladin, you have to go smack things. Um, but for those that aren't in the know, the point of The Redemption Paladin is that they're kind of like the Jedi Paladin or the Jesus Paladin in terms of like, be at peace, do not fight. Like conflict should be our last resort. We should try to resolve this diplomatically before we resort to violence. And so she shows up in this village where the party are kind of doing stuff. Um, the typical she, murder hobos that we were. Yeah, exactly. She, I mean, that's exactly it, right? Like she instantly becomes an antagonist to anyone who's murder hobo-ish, who's trying to push their weight around the the village, um, you know, unfairly, even just bullying shopkeepers with threats of violence. She's going to rock up and tell you to stop. So she instantly makes herself an antagonist to the party or perhaps a protagonist to the party's antagonizing of the town. Um, but the party within the context of this, uh, you know, village without going into, you know, getting lost in the weeds of the story, they are in a situation where doing the right thing may increasingly require violence. Mm. And so, but she doesn't see things the same way the party see things. Even people who ultimately want the same goal may consider the best course of action to be entirely different. And this can lead them into conflict with each other. And so, you know, the, the good players in the party don't want to hurt this woman, you know, this paladin, this this peer to them fundamentally. But at the same time, she's getting in the way of what they're trying to accomplish. And she won't move. And and she won't move. And the, the party are getting in the way of what she wants to accomplish the way she wants to accomplish it. So I, I find that interesting because it's not just a throwaway, you know, hobgoblin villain that the party can kill and not feel bad about. They really have to grapple with the decision to inflict violence upon this woman to remove her as an obstacle or find another way to remove her as an obstacle. I think that's key, yeah, finding that that other way to remove them without it being violent. That's... For sure. I mean, it's more... It's about the experience, right? It's experiential. It's... You make whatever decision you got to make and your character has to live with that decision, you know? Whether... It's not to say that violence isn't the right choice, but it's up to the players to be comfortable with whatever choice they make. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't for everyone, but I think it's a, again, it's one of those memorable villains or memorable antagonists more so than a villain because it's not necessarily a villain in a lot of cases, just Mm. someone opposed against the protagonist. Again, the the protagonist is not always a designated hero. 
that um, just mm. because you're the player character does not make you the good guys. No, no, absolutely not. And that's what I enjoy shining the light on as well. Like we we had a party once where they walked into a town. One of them was like a tabaxi or something, which, you know, anthropomorphic uh, player yeah. characters, yeah, are not necessarily welcome within Aurelia or they don't fit the setting. But this guy really wanted to play a, a cat person. And uh, there was a half-orc among the group as well. So a couple of kind of like non uh, typical humanoid-ish looking races and they were in a city that was highly xenophobic of these strange supernatural looking people and so uh, the crowd became increasingly kind of um, violent and and antagonistic of the party to the point where they were you know starting to band together and grab their pitchforks <laughs> and their torches and try and beat up the party and kick them out of town the party in this particular circumstance, particularly like the wizard, they just went ham. Like they were splitting people in half with their battle axes and casting lightning bolt down a street, like vaporizing five villages all at the same time. You know, like they were, they slaughtered like 27, you know, villages or something. And it wasn't that many. It was like seven or eight villages you know, in a single combat. It's enough that, like, it's a real butcher of Blaviken moment, you know, if you understand that reference of, like, the party were put under duress, but ultimately who they killed were just these scared villagers who didn't understand really the choice they were making because they were afraid and they they thought saw the party as different from them. Yeah. And that's, you know, I want the party to have to... I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done what they did, <laughs> but it is shining that spotlight on the, like, you guys are not automatically the heroes here. What you say doesn't necessarily go and it's all fine. Like you, you, you can become what you hate very, very easily or what you strive against very easily. I feel that that's probably not a common aspect for, I mean, a lot of dungeon masters probably realize this after the first couple of sessions when their, their characters are starting to loot the, the bodies of the peasants yeah. and the bandits that they just found on the side of the road. For sure. But I feel that that's not something that most people come into with their first D&D game, um, which you kind of did. As soon as you started playing, you had Aurelia almost ready to, well, ready to go for parties. So what was your first experience? What brought you to D&D in the first place? Yeah, I kind of flirted with D&D for a really long time. I should have been playing it when I was a teenager, but I actually didn't get into it until I was like 27, I think. Um, so about three, four years ago. Um, and basically what happened was that uh, I was getting into, like it was like with the board game resurgence that kind of happened a few years before the RPG resurgence was I was playing, uh, you know, increasingly complicated board games, started with games like Pandemic and, and Ticket to Ride and stuff like that and then got into um, Imperial Assault, which is like a Star Wars dungeon crawler um, and Descent uh, and things like that and kind of thought that they, I liked the idea of like campaign play where your choices kind of matter as you go on and thought maybe I'll play these games instead of D&D because I couldn't be bothered learning a textbook of rules. Yeah. I was really intimidated by D&D's rule system. Uh, but then eventually through this group of friends that I had who were role playing board games, uh, one of which was my brother who had played D&D since he was a teenager, um, were like, let's try 5th edition D&D. Um, let's get together and do it. And so I was like, yeah, for sure. And we started uh we we put together characters and started playing with my brother dungeon being the dungeon master and it was really simple stuff i think it was horde of the dragon queen that he was running so 
seeing the dragon in the air and then going into the village and fighting the kobolds and then going to save like different parts of the village that were getting burnt down. And my first character was this, uh, I think he was a half elf. He was an Oath of the Ancients paladin. Um, I was kind of actually drawing on Aloy uh, from Horizon Zero Dawn a little bit, just in terms of, um, not so much in terms of personality, but in terms of like vibe, Mm -hmm. you know, like kind of long braided hair and a spear, you know, as their main weapon and a bow for ranged attacks. Yeah, really evocative. Exactly. Didn't really understand the rules. Didn't really realize that a bow is not really ideal for a paladin, but whatever. um but was playing a paladin so i was like okay i'm i'm you know i want what's best for everyone and i want what's good in the world the other three players had played a lot more D than i had and they were kind of a little bit more uh what we later be described as gonzo kind of D, where they were just kind of doing like whatever and like threatening people and at one point i decided to change character because i didn't feel my character fit with the rest of the party because they were looting corpses of villages and you know exactly what you were describing before so I changed to someone who was more neutral, who was uh, Wilfred Volker, who was a, you know, six and a half foot tall uh, German sounding uh, knight um, with a with a warhammer. But when I was trying to change character, we were trying to come up with a story reason as to why my previous character had left and he got knocked down during a combat just by happenstance. And so one of the other characters at the table was just like, oh, I just slit his throat and that'll take him out of the game. Like just so like off the cuff. And I felt Jeez. like really attacked by that. Yeah, I know. I was like, holy hell, like just commit murder on this guy. The other dude who, who suggested it, he wasn't trying to be malicious. He, he just thought like, oh, that, that'll be an easy excuse as to why he's not in the game yeah, anymore. Murdered. Um, and then played as Wilfred Volker for like a session or two and um, enjoyed that a little bit more, but still found that, the other guys were just, it just felt like they were bouncing off the walls, like all around me, like just doing really weird, constantly insulting and offending NPCs just thoughtlessly. And, um, you know, having a really good time doing it for sure. Like, I'm not trying to say that they were bad players or that they, they weren't doing it right or anything like that, but I just wasn't vibing with them because I saw all the NPCs as real people, you know, and I didn't want to be rude to them necessarily or at least my character wouldn't have been it was a real like playing mass effect wanting to go the paragon road when you're all your party are choosing all the renegade options you know it just felt really incongruous Mm -hmm. um so i played like three sessions in total with that introduction and then wasn't even necessarily thinking about like their style of playing the game at the time but when i started dming almost immediately after it was with an air of like, this is a real place. These NPCs have wants and desires and needs. You're, you are not any more special for being an adventurer. You know, you're not chosen by the gods or anything. You just, uh, you know, have the will to act on, on, in dangerous situations. You have a particular set of skills. So you just like jumped feet first into the deep end of a campaign setting then? Yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty much. It, it took a, I think there was maybe two weeks between stopping playing as a player character and starting the campaign. And like the map wasn't finished when we started, uh, you know, I kind of famously didn't know the rules for spell casting during the first few sessions because I, you know, was still trying to wrap my head around the rules. Um, but yeah, like I just, I had to keep evolving the camp. And, and, and to be honest, like Aurelia is a huge place geographically speaking. I still don't know the, the finer details of what's, everywhere i discover more as players travel to places um 
and then I have to, you know, flesh out a certain area, um, you know, Hedeby, which is like a valley um, in a certain section. Like I didn't know what was in this for all intents and purposes, basically empty part of the map mm-hmm. until we had to set a campaign somewhere. And I was like, right, I'll set it there. I'll call the Valley Hedeby. I can see there's a forest and a mountain there. So I'll make those like key geographical locations. Wouldn't it be cool if the, if there was a, a like a village that was all in some trees? Cause I think I'd seen something on Pinterest of like an Ewok looking village. I was like, that'll be cool. So I'll make like the village, this like tree, you know, tree house village. Um, oh, it'll grow on two trees and the trees will have two different names. And there's a reason they're living up in the trees, you know, and that kind of informed the story before that it was just a place on a map. Yeah. You know? um, and that's, I find that's a great way to have inspiration for, for dungeon masters or game masters coming up with worlds themselves. You just find some interesting image, you find some interesting story or myth and you go, great, hmm. what can I build off that? Yeah, 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 exactly. I'll look at like an image and I'll be like, where can I fit that into my campaign setting? You know? Where would that exist if it was in this world? Well, thank you for coming and speaking with us today, Ben. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, if you want to come hang out, I paint miniatures and sometimes upload magic items and stuff at, uh, at melb, M-E-L-B underscore D-M, um, which is my handle on Twitter and Instagram where I'm most active. Um, and I'm also Ben Byrne DM uh, on Facebook. Um, and if you want to check out what we're doing, because we do run games at D&D professionally, we are at uh, www.melbournedungeonmaster.com, all one word. Um, so I upload like images of painted minis and stuff there as well. Uh, but last of all, Ben, would you be so kind as to sign off to our wonderful listeners with possibly one of your favorite villains saying goodbye to them all or how you feel that they would bid farewell? time to eat and that's all for our show this week and i hope you had a good time listening i certainly had a good time talking with ben um every time doesn't matter i mean i talk with ben every few days um sometimes every day depending on what what we've got going on with Melbourne Dungeon Masters and um, what's going on with the D&D game and the vampire game and what's going on with the Dyson DMs pretty regularly but every single time it is just an absolute pleasure hearing about all the the ideas for um role-playing games that are going on in his head anyway if you would like to support this podcast you can head over to soundcloud and leave a review leave a follow leave a comment you can subscribe um hopefully we'll be on apple podcasts and spotify by now and you can follow us there on as well if you would like to get in touch, there is tellmeaboutyourdnd at gmail.com. That is uh, the best way to get in touch, honestly, because I'll actually see it. Because we do have a Twitter, which is at tellmeyourdnd. But for some reason, Twitter notifications come through like three hours after they've actually happened. I'm like, well, that was useful. I guess I'll get back to that person who's probably asleep now. But we also have Instagram and Facebook as well, which are both at Tell Me About Your DND. And all of these are the letter D, the letter N, and then the letter D again. Of course, you can also find me on my other podcast, Of Dice and DMs, which is soundcloud.com slash Of Dice and DMs, uh, which, yeah, Ben and I talk even more with our resident player, Tori, uh, and her guests come on quite often as well. That is a weekly podcast, so you'll hear from us regularly. But um, until next time, thank you so much for listening, and may all your hits be crits. Yeah.